This is the Tea on International Arbitration with Nicole Silver and Gaela Garen Flores. Gaela is an international arbitration partner at Allen and Overy, and I'm in the litigation funding slash insurance space. Both of us serve as committee chairs of the DC Bar International Law Community. Today, we bring you a new tea that explores the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center's proposed guidelines for the use of artificial intelligence in arbitration. And to do so, we have with us three of the drafters of these groundbreaking guidelines, Sophia Klott, Orlando Cabrera, and Lizzie Chan. Gayla, would you like to do the honors of introducing our guests? Happily. Thanks, Nicole, and thanks to all of the people here today. We have a special episode coming up. And first, I will start with an institutional introduction. The Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center, which is the institution from which all of our interviewees come today, it's a nonprofit foundation based in Palo Alto, California, which was founded in 2014 with the mission of promoting efficient technology dispute resolution, including advancing the use of arbitration and mediation in technology and technology-related business disputes around the world. The Silicon Valley Center's Board of Directors has 27 highly regarded members of the technology alternative dispute resolution community, and I will briefly introduce the three members of the AI Task Force and Drafting Subcommittee, whom we have with us today. First, Lizzie Chan. Lizzie is a registered foreign lawyer at Tanner DeWitt in Hong Kong, where she is growing the firm's international arbitration practice, as well as practicing restructuring and insolvency and litigation. She previously worked in leading arbitration practices at Allen & Overy in Hong Kong, Three Crowns in London, and HSF in New York and Hong Kong. She hosted the first ever arbitration gathering in the metaverse in January, 2022. Next up, we have Orlando Cabrera, who studied in Canada, Mexico, and the United States of America, and is fluent in English, Spanish, Portuguese, and French. Orlando counsels companies, governments, and corporate investors in the international dispute resolution community across borders and languages at Hogan and Lovells. He is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators and former board secretary of the CIARB's North American branch, a listed arbitrator for the Tashkent International Arbitration Center, the Arbitration Center of the Lima Chamber of Commerce, the International Center for Conciliation and Arbitration, and the Panama Conciliation and Arbitration Center. He is also vice president to the ICC Mexico Investment Arbitration Committee, and the ICC Mexico Delegate to the ICC World Commission on Arbitration and ADR. Next, we have Sophia Klott, who is a senior associate at Freshfields in New York, where she practices international arbitration with a focus on Latin America. She is an Uruguayan former transactional attorney turned litigator, and throughout her career, she has worked closely with technology companies, advising them on dispute resolution strategies, investment protection, and tech-related disputes. As a legal tech enthusiast, she has been researching, writing, and speaking on AI and blockchain applications in the legal profession for several years. Her other passion is improving diversity in arbitration, and she is actively involved in a number of diversity initiatives, including 
as co-founder of the ERA Pledge Young Practitioners Subcommittee. Nicole? Hey, well, it's so great to have you all here. We love this topic of AI, and indeed, this is the third episode we have dedicated to it on the podcast. So if you haven't checked out our episodes with Dimitri Evsev, who incidentally is also one of the drafters of these guidelines, and Alejandra Para Orlandoni, you should definitely give them a listen after this show. But to get back to the present, we're bringing you now yet a totally brand new AI topic, the Silicon Valley Center's proposed guidelines for the use of AI in arbitration. And we're excited, though not at all surprised, that an initiative like this has gained so much momentum and even garnered some criticism. But before getting into how people are responding to it, let's start at the beginning with you, Orlando. Can you tell us a little bit about how this project began, what its impetus was, why we need these guidelines, and what you're attempting or hoping to regulate with them? Thank you very much, Gaela and Nicole, for the great opportunity to discuss with you these uh, interesting matters. Well, the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center was uh, aware that artificial intelligence substantially differs from other technologies like a calculator. And there are some problems associated with the use of technology that could compromise an arbitration. Therefore, there is a special task force committed to devise some guidelines on how to properly use in the arbitration field. So I think that was the basis on which we were called with some colleagues and led by Benjamin Malek to help set these guidelines. Mainly is that. Perhaps you'd like me to discuss some of the problems associated with this technology? Well, first, as I said, it substantially differs from a calculator. And I guess one of the most significant problems faced by this technology is hallucinations. Algorithms were said to provide a logic a plausible sounding response, but that does not necessarily is right, that it is not accurate. So you may recall the case of Mata versus Avianke, where some attorneys were not aware of the limitations of the technology, and they requested some assistance to ChatGPT to prepare a brief. Uh, the brief gave some cases that were plausible sounding, but not necessarily correct. So they filed the brief, and not surprisingly, the court found that uh, those cases didn't exist. So as you can see, this is one of the most pressing problems that hallucinations occur in the field of artificial intelligence. Of course, there are some techniques to mitigate the risk of having these problems, like prompt engineering, which is basically crafting the query in a manner that is more likely to generate better responses and also retrieval augmented generation, which is basically providing the model with relevant source material with a query. But uh, they are difficult to eliminate these uh, hallucinations. So as you can see, this is the first problem and perhaps the most important to address. Of course, there, there are also other problems related to the lack of data. For instance, even though ICC has around 28,000 cases today. There are different aspects to consider in all these awards, like uh, these awards were issued in English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and German. The law applicable to the merits substantially varies, and it has changed and evolved through the years. 
the seats of arbitration are different, and even cases and awards are based on different versions of the ICC rules. So, as you can see, many aspects changed. Another aspect to consider is related to the possible perpetuation of bias. So, in this regard, Maxi Scherter gives us an example, and she says, let's assume for a moment that there exists a bias in investment arbitration in favor of states. So, assuming that the algorithm takes all the cases with that bias, the algorithm will perpetuate the bias in favor of the states. And lastly, I would like to discuss the black box problem, which is basically the limitation or the incapacity of the technology to provide us a, a reasoning. Despite the precision of machines and their future development over time, predictive machines still maintain the black box problem so legal analysis, it's completely limited because they were trained to provide a response based on predictions, but they are not like a human that can give you the correct path from A to B to C. And this is a fundamental problem because, as you know, for instance, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights has held the reasoning safeguards due process and provides credibility to the decision justifies conclusions and make it possible for the parties to know the facts, the motives, and the norms on which the judge based his or her decision. So this is a major problem. Some arbitral institutions, some uh, arbitration rules require reasoning. Uh, there are some exceptions, for instance, on CITRAL. But this is some of the problems we wanted to explore in the guidelines. And I think lawyers should be mindful of them. And when they use the technology, they should have the minimal understanding, what are the limitations and how to properly use. So briefly, um, these, I think, were the, the main concerns that point us and lead us to prepare these guidelines. Thanks, Orlando. I think certainly one of the areas that you discussed, so, so you discussed kind of three big buckets of problems or potential problems. Hallucinations, basically the, the AI platform or software making up information that doesn't exist, <laughs> that is incorrect, which yes, I think a lot of practitioners around the world are aware of the problems that have already presented themselves before U.S. courts in that regard. And then the second problem was just kind of perhaps bias that's cooked in or that can be cooked into an AI system. And the third is the black box problem. And pausing a bit on the black box problem, because I, I don't want to lose sight of this. I do want to talk at some point about the fact that not even the software engineers who have created these programs are aware necessarily of how these AI platforms are actually creating the outputs that they're creating, right? And yet I'm aware that the guidelines themselves ask lawyers to familiarize themselves with the AI platforms that they're using and understand them. <laughs> and so I, I wonder, and I think maybe this will be for another question a little bit later, but I did want to put that on the table. I do wonder how you ask lawyers 
to figure out or learn about AI platforms that the designers of which aren't particularly sure <laughs> how they're working. But in any event, just wanted to put that out there and let you let that question percolate. Moving on to a slightly different question that I have, and it, it is another quandary that I have. So we understand that the guidelines that you've drafted are meant to apply across the globe, and that the hope is that all arbitral centers, institutions, and practitioners will engage with them, similar to, say, the IBA rules on taking evidence, which are rather ubiquitous in the practice of international arbitration today. I understand that the rules as currently drafted refrain from creating a mandatory ethics baseline. Instead, they require each practitioner to act consistently with their own applicable ethics rules. Given the variety in applicable ethics rules around the globe, existence and non-existence around the globe, do you think this is a workable solution? Is it tenable to have, say, one council team of lawyers that is subject to one set of ethics rules and an opposing council team that is not? And what about the arbitrators? And to field this wonderful question, Sophia, <laughs> I am pointing to you. Thanks, Gaila. This is a great question, and I can see how this can be a, a quandary. So, so the intent with the guidelines was not to override or detract from these existing laws, regulations, and ethical duties that apply to those involved in arbitrations. Because as we have seen from Mata via Bianca, some uses of these AI tools can indeed cause lawyers, and not just lawyers, but licensed professionals in general, to violate some of their ethical duties. Now, in the United States, we have you know, ethical and professional duties, such as the duty of diligence, competent representation, confidentiality, and also rules that establish that, generally speaking, only licensed lawyers can provide legal advice. But what we have seen inside the task force is that Similar rules also exist in one way or another in many other legal systems and traditions around the world, and with, of course, varying scope, right? I can refer, for example, to in the U.S., you have legal privilege. In Latin American countries, you have secreto profesional. They are similar, but they're not exactly the same. But the rationale at their, their very core, there is a common rationale. So there are quite a lot of commonalities that we can draw from. We did not want to repeat what the existing rules already say or reinvent the wheel. But what we wanted to do with the guidelines was to create an instrument that could help users of AI tools conduct a sort of issue spotting exercise, so to speak. So the guidelines can be used to identify what uses of AI tools could cause someone to violate existing ethical duties so that we can all avoid ending up like the very unlucky and unfortunate <laughs> lawyer in the Mata case. And to that end, the guidelines and the commentaries provide examples of ways in which some uses of these AI tools could lead to violations of this kind. But it is true they do not create an independent standard. I mean, I think I take your point. It's a great point, and it, it would be very helpful to have a common ethical baseline much, for example, like the IBA guidelines on the taking of evidence established for document production. And I think this is great food for thought. And, and I think, you know, I will take this up to the task force for the next iteration of the guidelines, because I think we can think about this a little bit more. 
this being a soft law instrument, however, we were concerned about setting a baseline that would be incompatible with the applicable rules in some jurisdictions. And because we're dealing with questions of ethics and professional responsibility and not just procedure, we thought that we might be overstepping. I would say one, one final aspect that we were also mindful of is that experts are also sometimes subject to ethical obligations and standards of conduct. And we felt it would be a little bit difficult to establish a common baseline for all the different disciplines and fields of expertise. Thank you, Sophia. I was going to switch gears, but maybe now would be a good opportunity to get back to Gaela's question about the black box. I, I don't know, Orlando or, or even Lizzie, do you guys have some thoughts on that? Sure. Um, briefly, it's guideline number one, which is understanding the uses, limitations, and risks of AI. And mainly this guideline tries to raise awareness of these problems. We don't intend to explain all problems, but just raise awareness that uh, this problem exists. This is why lawyers should be competent enough to know the basics of, of the technology and how to avoid them. I don't know, Liz, if you want to add something to this. Yeah, thanks, Orlando. I think that the status quo I will remain, which is even now, if one party uses a tool that is a bit unusual, they'll probably have an expert explain the methodology behind that tool. And then it would be open to the other side's expert to challenge it. And then potentially a decision would be required by the tribunal to decide whether to allow the use of that methodology or they would assess the use of that tool based on like a quarter weight to it, for example. So by no means are we expecting lawyers to be able to explain the black box, but to have a reasonable degree of understanding. I suppose it all comes down to the same burden of proof, right? Like if you're relying on a tool, uh, if you're trying to establish your case, the burden will be on the party asserting that claim to be able to prove it uh, to the balance of probabilities or whatever is the applicable standard. Thanks, Lizzie. That is helpful. And I think just as a reminder to everyone, and I think that, again, a lot of people are familiar with the IBA guidelines or rules. These are guidelines or rules that parties and arbitrators willingly choose to apply to their proceeding, just like the IBA guidelines. Uh, no one is mandating their application. So I guess, you know, with respect to any of the rules or standards that exist in these guidelines, much like in the IBA guidelines, and going back to my question to Sophia about an ethics baseline, even if these guidelines were to establish some sort of ethics baseline, like, for instance, if you were to create a baseline that no no lawyer can submit a product to a tribunal that has not been created by a lawyer without a lawyer having comprehensively reviewed it before its submission. That's certainly the ethics rule that applied in the Mata case that got that lawyer into hot water in the Mata case the ethics rule that that lawyer did not follow. And I just wonder if it would be something that that could very easily be adopted by the guidelines, 
because the practitioners, counsel, arbitrators in the end could decide whether or not to adopt that and apply that particular guideline to their proceeding. Unless I'm misunderstanding, and let me know if that if that understanding is correct. I think so. And I think, you know, that's a great example. So the guidelines do not refer specifically to sort of a lawyer copy-pasting work product from an AI tool or platform and presenting this, you know, ultimately presenting something that is not the work product of a lawyer. What we the guidelines mostly address is the issue of accuracy, right? So it is a lawyer's job. It is also an arbitrator's job and an expert's job to check that whatever output an AI tool produces and is then incorporated into any type of submission is, is accurate from a factual, legal standpoint. But I like the point that you raised <laughs> about you know making sure that any work product is ultimately the work product of a lawyer, which is what the ethical rule in the matter case stated. So you know perhaps that, that could be an example that I can easily see being incorporated into the guidelines. Well, I think this is a good segue for getting back to the question I was initially going to ask here, which is about the types of feedback you're getting. Because, you know, very similar to what Gaila is flagging here, I understand that, you know, a lot of people have been offering feedback and raising interesting questions about the guidelines. And I know that we have until December 15th of this year to comment on the draft guidelines. But I'm wondering, Lizzie, you know, how, how has it been to date? Are you getting a lot of feedback? Are you seeing some trends or some common threads? Are some areas more ripe or hot or thorny than others? You know, what's the scoop? Can you tell us, Lizzie? Sure. The scoop is more like ice cream and sorbet than vanilla because we have had quite a lot of comments and many of them diverge. And that's actually one of the reasons why we extended the original deadline from September until December to give people the opportunity to comment. As for the trends and common threads that we've seen, I wanted to highlight just two for the purposes of this podcast. So the first one relates to the definition of AI. So in the draft guidelines, we define AI very broadly, being computer systems that perform tasks commonly associated with human cognition, such as understanding natural language, recognizing complex semantic patterns, and generating human-like inputs. Okay, when I read it like that, it actually sounds quite complicated. But in our heads anyway, the idea was to have a very broad definition that would include both existing and future types of AI. But at the same time, the purposes of the guidelines was to focus more on modern uses of AI and some of the concerns more recently raised by generative AI and large language models. So the idea was not to focus on tools that practitioners have been using for a long time, like OCR or relativity or machine translations. Based on some of the comments that I've seen so far, some would like us to define AI even more precisely and refer to features such as neural networks, natural language processing, reinforcement learning, etc. But I think the general consensus may be, and, and this is subject to further consultation, that the definition of AI will need to evolve as the technology advances and its applications diversify. The definitional issue raises a core issue, actually, as to whether we should have any guidelines at all 
So some have suggested that we should have the option to ban certain uses of generative AI, while others have said that we shouldn't over-regulate and should adopt a more laissez-faire approach, since generative AI is or will be ubiquitous, and they want arbitration to embrace this technology. So that's the first thorny problem. The second thorny problem, which I think is even more thorny actually, is the disclosure of the use of AI tools and arbitration and the circumstances in which we will require disclosure. So this was so thorny that even among the subcommittee of seven to eight people, we weren't able to agree. Uh, what we could agree on is that we should remain somewhat agnostic and not impose a general duty to disclose any and all uses of AI tools. However, we still recognize in the guidelines that there may be certain circumstances where disclosure of those AI tools is still helpful to preserve the integrity of the proceedings or the evidence. And this is particularly so when a party or, or an expert uses AI in the preparation of submission, expert opinions, demonstratives or evidence that have some material impact on the proceedings and or their outcome. Ultimately, we couldn't decide on which option to go, so we actually offered the public two options. One option is more prescriptive than the other, but many of the comments have focused on this issue of disclosure. And, you know, like people are very welcome to suggest a third way as well and choose neither of the options that were presented. And just to show the degree of disagreement when it comes to disclosure, I ran a very simple and unscientific poll on my LinkedIn page, and I asked whether parties should be obliged to disclose the use of an AI tool in arbitration proceedings. So 46 of my friends were almost evenly divided in their views. So 28% favored disclosure, but only of audit. 33% favored proactive disclosure by a party, even if not ordered. And 30% favored allowing parties to request disclosure, which is actually aligned with the two options that we propose in the guidelines. And then the remaining 9% suggested some other solution. So in terms of what we've seen in the public consultation so far, some have favored one option over the other. Some have even gone further. So, for example, one commentator suggested that we should have guidelines for the maintenance of records relating to the use of AI tools so that you've got that information ready if you're required to disclose it. We also discussed this in the task force, but we quickly realized the problem that, you know, if you're having lots of back and forth with the chatbot, you've potentially got you know, reams and pages of documents that relate to your use of that AI tool. And it could actually be quite difficult to record all of that down. And my final point is that some of the commentators saw a difference between disclosure requirements for users and parties as opposed to arbitrators. And this is particularly a concern when there is a perceived risk of arbitrators delegating their functions to an AI tool. I guess it overlaps with some of the issues that we've seen with tribunal secretaries as well. So that's the inside scoop so far. We've got a couple of months to go, so we hope that listeners here will give the input via our website. Thanks, Lizzie. I was wondering if you've seen any pattern in the way folks seem to be lining up 
in terms of their opinions and comments. For instance, you mentioned that there are certain people who just want to ban all uses of AI altogether. Have you found that those individuals tend to come from either certain regions or certain legal backgrounds, or are they more arbitrators versus practitioners? Have you seen any pattern along those lines? I think off the top of my head, I haven't been able to discern those general trends, but I know that Sophia, you've done some oral consultation. So do you want to chip in on this one? Yes, I've actually detected a couple of patterns. And as Lizzie mentioned, the comments are (laughs) sometimes strikingly, you know, on opposite ends of the spectrum. But one pattern I've noticed is there's a little bit of a difference between the perception of risk that arbitrators and counsel have when, you know, they pretty much have like either their arbitrator hats on or their counsel hats on. So we found that counsel generally tend to be quite worried about the possibility of arbitrators using some of these generative AI tools, sort of like indiscriminately, maybe without understanding the tool very well and without revealing it. And so there's a real concern from counsel (laughs) about that. When you ask arbitrators, conversely, they're like, well, I want to know if the lawyers are using, you know, ChatGPT to draft their submissions. I want them to disclose that. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. In the task force, we've discussed this. And, you know, on the counsel side, if you're using whatever tool in an inappropriate way, the other side can always challenge that and there will be a discussion. But when a tool is used by the tribunal and you might not even know, you don't have that possibility to challenge it. And, you know, it's not necessarily subject to a back and forth. So I think that's one one pattern that we've seen. Another pattern that we've seen is we've started to get feedback from some people involved in institutions, and some of the institutions are really trying to embrace this technology and go sort of like full speed ahead. And they want to use generative AI for everything. And they want very little guardrails. So they're positioning themselves as kind of the efficient option via v court proceedings. Other institutions have taken a little bit of a more cautious approach and want to have perhaps more guardrails or limitations. But th- those are a little bit the patterns that have emerged. Some of the uh, commentators that have, have advocated for sort of more like bans or restrictions sometimes tend to come from academia. I would say those are the patterns that have emerged. That makes sense. I, I have... Uh... Folks in academia in my life who tend to lament the existence of of AI on a daily basis. (laughs) But thanks for that answer, Sophia. And I gather in light of that or following from that, where do we go from here? Given all the comments that you've received, given the fact that there doesn't seem to necessarily be a consensus in the international arbitration community on the use of AI, What is the next step in the process of instituting these guidelines? And Sophia, if I could go back to you for an answer to this question. Sure. So as Lizzie mentioned, we have extended the consultation process. This is still very much a draft, and that's why we launched the public consultation to begin with. The deadline is now December 15th, and we invite everyone that's listening to please, you know, submit your comments, ideas. For us, it's really crucial to receive comments because the guidelines will only be useful with the buying of the arbitration community. 
And the next step is that in parallel, we're also launching a consultation process specifically aimed at institutions. So in the coming days, we will be asking institutions for their input and inviting them to submit their amendments or adaptations to the guidelines so that they can sort of make them their own. These adaptations will then be compiled in a separate chapter to the guidelines. And, you know, looking even further ahead, the hope, of course, is that parties, arbitrators, and institutions will adopt the guidelines as a reference framework and that we can avoid a situation where every institution has sort of like their own set of rules and they're sometimes different. So we strongly believe that we need some form of uniformity in this space. Indeed. All right, guys, sadly, we're running out of time. But before we go, I would like to ask each of you the question we like to ask all of our guests at the conclusion of the show. And that is what, other than what we have already been discussing, is keeping you up at night? Orlando, I would like to start with you and then we can go to Sophia and Lizzie, you can close us out. Thank you very much, Nicole. Experts say or find similarities between electricity and artificial intelligence. And it took 40 years to transform the industry as we know today in the U.S. from the old technologies, fossil fuels and carbon to electricity. So if we use that similarity with AI, we are closer to 1880. And we will need to have 40 years to see the full transformation of all industries. So one of the questions that triggers more my attention is the one whether one day artificial intelligence will be able to decide a case. And in that scenario, what are the new rules that we will need to have in place? Because the New York Convention, although it's useful and it has resisted some change, it's a 70-year-old document. And it talks about some technologies that no longer exist today, like the use of the telegraph and the telex. So I think I, I would love to reach the year 2060 and see how the world changed, how the new regulation changed. And um, yeah, I think that is triggering my attention. I think it was my turn next. So I'm going to wear my diversity hat for this one. And one issue I have been uh, thinking about quite a bit is how AI might be used for arbitrator selection. And whether in the not-so-distant future, we will be seeing, for example, tools that can recommend the best arbitrator candidates for a particular dispute, and whether institutions at all at some point might begin to use some of these tools for appointments. And obviously, as a diversity advocate, I'm quite concerned about parties using these tools in a way that could exacerbate the existing lack of diversity on arbitral tribunals. Orlando mentioned the issue of bias. I think we have to be extremely cautious when even thinking about using AI tools for selection and appointments, because if the algorithm is trained primarily on past appointments and the training data is not adjusted to account for these built-in biases, then we will only be perpetuating the status quo. And that's definitely something that keeps me up at night. Yeah, that that's a pretty much a nightmare scenario for me, especially if you just think of a large language model that's just predicting what comes next. And if all it's been trained on is what has happened in the past, well, <laughs> then, you know, probably 95% of the time you are going to see a very not diverse name pop up from that platform. So yeah, that is a huge concern. And Lizzie, 
What's keeping you up at night? You know, one thought that I have is how the widespread adoption of chatbots and generative AI is going to change the way that we train law students. I've heard quite a lot of concerns already from various people that, you know, the chatbot will take away some of the training opportunities, not just for law students, but trainees as well. And I wanted to highlight what I thought was a very creative and thoughtful assessment for the arbitration class at a Hong Kong university. So the task was to ask the students to use ChatGPT to come up with a strategy relating to a fictional arbitration. And the student's task was to assess the strategy proposed by the chatbot and consider its strengths and weaknesses and to work on improving the proposed strategy. And this is actually quite like the way that I use ChatGPT. You know, I, I give it like quite clear instructions and then I actually work with the machine, the, the chatbot, to improve whatever I'm doing. And I just thought this was a really creative way to embrace the potential of chatbots and generative AI rather than banning it altogether. So that's what I've been thinking about. Yeah. I do wonder, you know, if AI, it certainly is very convenient. And I, you know, I, I certainly use it myself to draft certain things like we discussed, but I do wonder if it will start to make us kind of regress <laughs> as articulate beings, you know, I do wonder if it's going to kind of put us back a bit. I don't know. Or maybe it will free us up to think about things. Our children are doomed. They can't have conversations. They can only text. It's all downhill. Right. But like, you know, but just like with the math app that your son's professor was worried about, I mean, if you don't do a math problem, you are not going to learn how to do it. You know, and I, I think there's something to be said about research and writing and analysis. Like if you don't actually go through that process, you're not going to truly learn and become a master at doing it. Gail, I'm just wondering whether whether we should do it. Because for instance, if you see the professions that will disappear, mathematicians are on the top. And it's the same with calculator. I are mean, you suggesting that we should ban math from schools? <laughs> That's a very lawyerly thing to say. <laughs> the question is whether we should be doing it because that happened with the calculator and perhaps with Excel spreadsheets like 20, 30, 40 years ago. I was talking to an engineer and she told me that when she was studying the engineering degree, it was forbidden to use the most modern calculator at that time. So things have evolved. I'm not saying that I have the right answer or the correct view, but... Now we have to answer some questions whether we should be doing certain things. So I, I, I don't know. That's, those are my thoughts. Yeah. What is it? The cat may be out of the bag or whatever that expression is anyway. I think it's here. So whether we should do it or not do it, I don't know. But it seems like it's here. Yeah. And, that, you know, kind of like Wikipedia, there was so much controversy about Wikipedia and people in academia worried about students using Wikipedia and becoming dumber because of it, things like that. And look at it now, like Wikipedia is actually considered a, a relatively reasonable resource and place to start. It is a very good place to start. And I think, you know, despite my concerns about the potential for AI to make 
human beings dumber. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to find a way to continue to exercise our brains and how to use the tool, you know, how to use it in an effective way. You know, I think we're going to have to evolve with it. But I, if anything, I just want people to do it with eyes wide open so that they know that the potential consequence is that you as a human being, you as a lawyer might become less effective at writing yourself or analysis yourself. So you're going to have to compensate in some other way so that you don't become obsolete <laughs> or so that you don't become this, you know, inarticulate blob. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think there's any risk that lawyers will become obsolete. Yesterday, I was at a conference by a very well-known founder of a generative AI company, and he was addressing this to lawyers. And he was saying, you know, you all will become proficient editors with this new wave of generative AI, Gaila, what you were saying, right? But to be able to be a good editor, you need to, you know, learn how to be a good writer. You need to be able to tell, you know, this paragraph should say this, this should be the structure, this should be the way to build an argument. So we're still going to have to teach those skills. It's just we're going to be applying them from an editor's role. <laughs> and I think that's kind of what our profession will increasingly look like. To be a very good editor, you also have to have a lot of subject matter knowledge. So expertise will become increasingly important. Yeah. If I may add perhaps a thought, because I know that we talked about academics in saying like maybe they could be not as open to this type of AI, but you know, I, I actually think that academia has a huge role to play in shaping what the sort of like the rules <laughs> should look like, particularly because I think we need a lot more empirical studies on this. And this has been something that from a drafting perspective and for the task force, it has been difficult because of course we're receiving input from commentators. But we really need some hard data. There aren't even studies that look at the impact of generative AI use in courts, much less arbitration. And I think here is where you know academics can really weigh in and take on that role. And and frankly, you know, I think it's kind of vital going forward. Well, thank you so much to our guests, Lizzie Chen, Orlando Cabrera, and Sofia Klot. And thank you to the DC Bar. To check out more of what DC Bar communities have to offer, please visit dcbar.org backslash communities. And you have been listening to The Tea on International Arbitration. Watch out for new episodes. And if you liked this episode, please tell a friend about it and subscribe anywhere you access your podcasts.